Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, everyone. We have another great show for you today with Mr. Greg Dickerson joining us. So Greg is a serial entrepreneur, real estate developer, coach, and mentor. He has bought, developed, and sold over $250 million in real estate, built and renovated hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings, developed residential and mixed-use subdivisions, and started 12 different companies from the ground up. Greg currently coaches and mentors some of the top entrepreneurs and real estate investors around the world, helping them start, grow, and scale their business raise more capital and do bigger deals. Greg's current clients have over $2 billion in assets under management and deals in process. Greg is an expert on the topics of entrepreneurship, leadership, and real estate, and is regularly interviewed on some of the top real estate investing and business podcasts today. Greg served in the United States Navy right out of high school and has always been a leader in the community as well as supporting advising and serving on the boards of several churches, ministries, and nonprofit organizations. So give me a hand in welcoming Mr. Greg Dickerson to the show. Let's go. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Don? Very good. Very good. Long time no hear. How's life been treating you? You know, uh, probably about the same as you. <laughs> interesting, <laughs> you know. Yeah, definitely an interesting year, huh? Yeah, man. It's been it's been pretty crazy. Yeah. So thanks so much for um, joining us and spending some time with us today. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So why don't we um, why don't we jump right into it, Greg? I know you you probably have a lot planned today, so. Um, so why don't we start off by you telling the listeners a bit about your childhood growing up? What kind of personality did you have? Were you a good student? A little bit about your parents? All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a military family, so I was born in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My dad was military. So at a very young age, two years old, he was transferred to San Francisco, California. And then after that, San Diego. So I did my early preschool um, early elementary school years in California. And that's when I started my entrepreneurial career. Um, even I think it was third and fourth grade, I was running around cutting yards for people and uh, earning money and just kind of running around in California. You know, I didn't, you know, my dad was out to sea a lot. That was back in the days when they would do world tours. So he was on an aircraft carrier, the USS Kitty Hawk, and you know, he'd be gone 12, 16 months at a time. Um, so I didn't see him much growing up. And um, when he, you know, when he was around, we didn't spend a whole lot of time together. So um, then we moved to, he got transferred to Pensacola, Florida, the last six years of his uh, military career. And, um, uh, you know, he went in enlisted, came out an officer. Uh, he was a bosun, which is basically a, a laborer in the, in the Navy. When you go in as a bosun's mate, you know, you're just chipping paint and uh, painting and swapping decks. That's what those guys do. It's the grunt labor of the military. And uh, he rose through the ranks pretty quick and became an officer. Uh, he was frocked is what they call it and, and became a ward officer. So anyways, he got transferred to Pensacola, Florida. 
And that's where I kind of grew up. That's where I did fifth grade through 11th grade and uh, continued my entrepreneurial journey there. I was one of those kids that, um, you know, I'd go knock on your door and say, hey, my name's Greg Dickerson. I live down the street. I need to make some money. You know, what do you need done? I'll cut your grass. I'll rake your grass. I'll wash your car, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever time of year it was. You know, in Florida, we had huge pine trees in Pensacola. So I'd, I'd take my pine needle rake out and a tarp and you know, I'd go rake people's pine needles up for them for 10 or 20 bucks, depending on the size of their yard. In the summer, I'd push my lawnmower and gas can around the neighborhood, knocking on doors and, you know, I'd cut your grass for 20 bucks or, or whatever. So that's kind of me in a nutshell, how I was wired. You know, um, uh, you know, my dad taught me um, hard work. You know, I did everything around the house, all the chores on Saturday mornings when I was a kid. We'd be up at 6 a.m. Go out and going out in the woods, cutting down trees you know, for firewood. And then, you know, I'd take, we'd take that home and I'd have to chop it up and split the logs. And, you know, that's what I did on my Saturdays and Sundays in the fall, getting ready for the winter. And, you know, we were a middle-class family. So we had a, you know, house in the suburbs and a pool. And, you know, my dad was an officer in the military. So we, we were doing okay, but, you know, we, they were very frugal because, you know, even officers in the military back then didn't make a lot of money. So, um, you know, we used the fireplace as much as we could and didn't run the air conditioning unless we had to. And my mom would hang laundry out instead of using the dryer, things like that. So um, that's kind of the lifestyle we live. But, uh, you know, I learned hard work by doing all the chores around the house, washing and waxing the cars every week, you know, cutting the grass, raking the grass, cleaning the pool, chopping the firewood, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, that kind of instilled in me, um, you know, hard work. And then I learned, you know, how to create money. If I needed money, my dad wouldn't give it to me and say, Hey, you want money? You go out and make it. So mm -hmm. I'd go out and knock on doors and make money. So that's how I learned how to be an entrepreneur at a very young age. And, and then I did have a couple of jobs along the way while I was in high school. I worked at a supermarket. I did cold calling for uh, an organization, the Fraternal Order of Police. You know, at one point it was a nonprofit raising money for police, um, you know, police force in Pensacola, Florida. And that was an interesting job, just cold calling people off of a list. And, you know, I honed some sales skills there, you know, bag groceries at a supermarket. And then uh, my senior year, uh, when my dad retired from the military at the ripe old age of 38, we moved back to Virginia Beach, which is where I'm from. And I did my senior year there and uh, worked in some restaurants during that time. And then I joined the Navy uh, right out of high school. So I didn't go to college. I went in the Navy right out of high school and I did retail uh, in the Navy. And I did four years, got out and then uh, had a couple of jobs, but always had a side business along the way. And you know, my full-time entrepreneurial journey began in 1997 as a remodeling contractor handyman. And, you know, everything, everything went from there. I built that into a $30 million company in about seven years, exited that company and, and uh, used all the profits along the way to build 12 other companies up and exit those and get into real estate development. And the rest is history. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very nice um, history review. So were you um, in high school, were you a good student? No, terrible. I didn't like school. Uh, you know, I was I was what you would probably these days call, you know, ADD, you know, severe ADD. You know, I had behavioral problems. I didn't like school at all. I had a lot of energy. And, you know, I just I didn't like being there. Okay, so what, what, why did you choose or what attracted you to the Navy? You know, just uh, kind of a rite of passage. So everybody in my family were all military, you know, so it was kind of I wanted to serve my country and, and I wanted to, you know, do my part. But I didn't want to make a career of it. You know, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and do my own thing. So, you know, that's that's the path I went on. But I I went ahead and did that instead of going to college. And, you know, I, I, I got some education in the Navy in terms of accounting and, you know, a little bit of business that went along with the retail um, 
job that I had in the military. So I did take some classes along the way, but it was just kind of a, you know, rite of passage and just doing, doing my thing, serving my country. Okay. Yeah. No, that was my next question. I was going to ask what, 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 what kind of role did you have in the Navy? What was your yeah, so it was retail. So we took care of all the ships, you know, on the ships, you have stores and vending machines and barber shops and a laundry. So we took care of all that stuff. We were the supply division. So it was a really good, um, really good job to have because, you know, we controlled everything that came on the ship. So if you wanted anything, you know, uh, out of the stores or the vending machines or whatever, you know, we were the guys you had to come to. So <laughs> yeah, it was a good position to be in. Uh, we were very popular. And you were stationed where? So I was in Long Beach, California. So, uh, yeah. you, you know, we are from the East Coast and then lived in California, young, then Florida. Then, you know, I spent a year in Virginia Beach. And then when I joined the military, I actually um, met my ship. I was on the battleship New Jersey. This was in 1985. So I went to boot camp in Mississippi and then uh, flew out to Korea, met my ship in Korea. And then I did a Westpac, Western Pacific. So I've been to Japan, I've been to, you know, the Philippines, China, Thailand, um, you know, Korea, just all, all of the, you know, Asian countries in the, in the Western Pacific. Um, then I was stationed in Long Beach, California. And uh, when I got out, I stayed in California for, you know, a couple of years and uh, uh, got into industrial construction out there and um, moved back to Virginia Beach, started, started a little industrial construction company, traveled all up and down the East Coast doing defense contracting, doing work for the government. And, um, and then I moved to the Outer Banks of North Carolina in 1997. And that's when I started that remodeling handyman company down there and, and started, you know, building houses and developing property and, you know, doing deals all up and down the East Coast from, from North Carolina up into the D.C. corridor. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned um, you built um, over 10 companies from the ground up. Let's talk about some of those. Which, which was your next one after your first one, after you exited that one? So, you know, the, I did those all at the same time. So in a seven okay. year period, I took that first company from zero to 30 million. And along the way, I built up about 12 other different companies. So a lot of them were um, related to the construction and service industry on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. You know, that's where I lived. And so I had a, you know, electrical company, plumbing company, hurricane shutter company, painting company, pool spot, landscaping. I had a gymnastics, trampoline, cheerleading school, had some restaurants, you know, things like that. So you know, I'm just a classic serial entrepreneur. I love to help people. So, um, you know, people saw that I was very successful, very fast. So people were coming to me for advice. And then, uh, you know, people like my pool spa landscaping guy, you know, he, he had sold pools to me for a number of years and he'd been in the business for about eight years working for another company. He always wanted his own business, but didn't know how to do it. So he came to me and said, Hey, you know, um, you know, why don't we do a business together? You can buy these things. You're, you're buying 30 or 40 of them from me a year, you know, pools and spas. So you can get them at wholesale prices. We'll start this business and we can, you know, sell to other people. I'll run everything. You put up the money and we'll be partners. So I said, okay, sounds good. So we went and, you know, bought a building and built it out and uh, started that business. Uh, so that was one of them. And then we, you know, the, the idea was to add the turnkey aspect to it. Cause back in the day you had to hire somebody separate for pools and spas, then somebody separate to do the landscaping and somebody separate to do the irrigation. And, you know, you had three or four contractors, somebody separate to do the pool fence, you know, somebody separate to pour the pool deck, you know, all that. So we, we brought all that in house with that company. So you had one phone call, all that got done for your, you know, entire exterior package. Uh, so that was, you know, solving a problem, which is what entrepreneurs do. Plumbing company, you know, that was a plumber that worked for me and everybody was busy, you know, 2000, well, this was 97, 98, this is probably, probably 99, 2000. 
And it was very difficult to get trades contractors, kind of like right now. There weren't enough people in the business and everybody was busy. And my plumber wasn't doing well. It was him and another guy. And he was getting ready to go out of business. He wasn't a good business guy, good plumber. And uh, he came to me and said, man, I'm getting ready to go broke and have to file bankruptcy and move back to West Virginia. And, uh, and I said, well, why don't, we, uh, why don't we do something here? I said, how about if I buy the company, we, we grow it, and then I'll sell it back to you once it's, uh, once it's stabilized. And, and, you know, you can do all my work and, you know, you run it and I'll put up the money and we'll be partners. He said, okay. So uh, we did that. And literally overnight, I took him from two trucks to seven. Uh, so it was these seven or eight trucks took him from doing, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand a year to doing over a million a year. And he became the largest plumbing company on the, on the beach down there. And, you know, that company is still going, you know, 20 some years later. Wow. So yeah, so your first time at bed, I mean, you're, you built a $30 million company. What do you, what do you attribute that to? Cause it, I mean, it wasn't luck. You don't, you don't build that kind of company by luck. So what, what was your attribute? success so you know that was the hard work leadership you know so i so i'm a you know terrible student didn't like school didn't like classroom study but i am a lifelong learner seeker of wisdom so i developed myself educated myself personally professionally you know through books courses you know things like that anything and everything motivational business professional management so you know i, I had uh, along the way you know um i just would read books constantly uh, if I was out walking, exercising, you know, back in the day when it was a Walkman cassette tape, you know, I had books on tape and that was what I was listening to walking and working out, and, you know, never had any music playing. If I was in the car, it was never music or the radio it was always some sort of either business content or motivational content or something like that. And then it became CD players and, you know, I had the Sony Walkman CD player and then, then it was the iPod. And, you know, I have never to this day had any music on my iPod or in my iPhone. It's always you know, podcasts, you know, business podcasts, books on tape, you know, things like that. So I'm constantly, constantly developing myself, you know, pumping information into my mind. So that was, that was the number one thing, you know, I learned leadership in the military. I learned hard work, obviously, as a kid growing up. Um, I've always been, you know, very motivated, very hard worker. And, um, and then I developed myself as a leader, uh, you know, a leader, manager, delegator, leader, motivator, delegator, you know, first and foremost, and built a fantastic team. So the way I built that company so fast was um, I looked at, you know, I'd never built a house before. So I was just doing remodeling handyman work and I wanted to get into home building and I'd never built a house, had no clue how to do it. So what I did was I went and hired uh, some of the top people from the best company in the area that had been there for 10 years before I ever got there that were building 60, 70 houses a year. They were the largest, most successful builder in the area. You know, they were probably doing 50, 60 million a year. And uh, so I hired a couple of their top people to come work with me and help me build this company. So I hired them. I put put you know the right people in the right place and coached them to success. Kind of like you know if you want to if you want to win a Super Bowl, you know what do you do? You find the best mm -hmm. coach, you find the best players, and you let them do their job, and you coach them, and you motivate them, and you lead them, and you delegate, and you let them do what they do best. So you know if you if you have Tom Brady and you're the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You bring him on and you let him throw touchdowns. You don't bring him on and tell him how to throw a touchdown. You say, Tom, throw touchdowns. That's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so that's what I'm very good at <clears throat> is understanding my limitations, my weaknesses, and finding the right people to fill in those gaps. But more importantly, letting them do what I brought them in to do. The last thing you want to do is hire somebody, pay them a hundred, two hundred thousand a year, and not let them do their job, or worse than that, tell them how to do something that they've been doing their entire career that you hired them to do for you. So that's, uh, that's how that happened. And then, 
you know, of course, the biggest thing is the vision. So I had a vision for what I wanted to create. It was a very special company, very special group of people during a very special time. And I, I cast the vision that everybody bought into so they could all be part of something, you know, that was very special and, and, and you know, much bigger than all of us. And, you know, we did a lot to support the community. Uh, we did a lot to support the industry and our trade and, uh, you know, subcontractor and trade partners. You know, we helped them be successful. I put on trainings for them. And, you know, like my, my vendors and subcontractors, I would do trainings to help them become more efficient, more profitable and build their businesses. So, yeah, I was always kind of a leader, you know, coach, mentor, and, uh, you know, involved in a lot of different things. So that's, that's how I did it. Okay. Amazing. So you're doing, you're building houses. Um, any other type of development projects that you begin working on? Yeah. So I would use the profits to, you know, I was building houses, doing spec houses. Then I started, you know, developing land subdivisions. Then I started doing commercial buildings and multifamily buildings and uh, industrial properties. So I did, you know, I did a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I was in a small area and my geographical area was, was limited. So, you know, my type of asset that I uh, invested in and developed, you know, was broad. So, you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to be geographically limited and focused, then you got to broaden your asset type that you invest in. You know, if you're going to narrow in and focus on an asset type in class, then you have to broaden your geography. So, uh, I chose to stay in the area so I could be there for my kids and, you know, not be traveling all over the place and be home every night. And, you know, so I did what I could do in my areas. And those were the types of projects that I did. And for somebody like me coming from where I came from, you know, it worked out pretty good. I ended up doing about a quarter billion, you know, deals, my own money, just myself, no investors. And, and then I did, you know, four or 500 million with investors. And, you know, then I had a retail um, real estate business as well. And, you know, so it, it was a lot of fun. You know, I did, I don't know, all my companies combined over the years probably did, you know, three, 400 million, you know, something like that. So it's, it was a lot of fun. So, yeah. And, and you mentioned um, family. So at what stage, at what stage of your entrepreneurial career did you get, did you meet your wife and get married? You know, that was 1990. So I was 23 at the time. And, um, you know, I had, I had a, I was working in restaurants and then I always had a business on the side during that time from 93 to 97. So, or from 1990 to 97. So there was a seven year period where I tried a couple of different businesses. It didn't work out. I had jobs along the way that, you know, that I learned a lot. Uh, I was with a couple of restaurant corporations where I, I received some really great business training and management leadership training, Lone Star Steakhouses. Um, so I would do that, you know, at night. And then I always had my, my business on the side where I was building decks, doing fences, you know, the, the government contracting I did for about two years full time uh, until that kind of dried up. Um, you know, we went through a little transition there where the government really cut back on the spending, doing the kind of things I was doing back in the 90s. So, you know, 23 years old, 1990 is when I started by 97. You know, I had two kids. Uh, one, the oldest was five. You know, I had my first child at 23 or 25. I had my first child at 25, the second one at 27. And then uh, in 1997, I guess I was 20, I was 30. And that's when I started that construction company and, you know, been self-employed ever since, never looked back. So, so I was a millennial back then, <laughs> you know, what would be a millennial now? That's, that's, you know, that's when I started everything back then. So I started young. Yeah, very young. And has your, did your wife always have that entrepreneurial drive or does she, did she always support that drive? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. It was, it was totally the opposite. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she, she was a school teacher, you know, so it was all about comfort and security and safety and, you know, um, 
no appetite for risk, no stomach for it. So I just kind of did my own thing and didn't really tell her much and just did what I did, you know? Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole nother interview there. Oh yeah, that's a whole nother story. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, yeah. So I, you know, I've always just been self-motivated. I just do my thing and, you know, and I just, I go to work and, you know, the thing is I'm a hard worker. So it sounds easy and it sounds, you know, like people look at me now and they're like, oh man, you know, and people, you know, they understand. I mean, I'm a 30 year process here that, that I've been doing this. And it was, you know, all the work that I did from the time I got out of high school, you know, all the way through in the military, all the way through after that. And then when I was a little kid, all the lessons I learned and the work that I did, you know, just that one lesson my dad taught me, you know, when I said, hey, I want this or that. I remember I was taking karate. Okay. So I, I'm a martial artist. I took karate when I was a kid and started when I was a kid. And, you know, my dad said, well, if you want to go test for your next belt, you need to go make some money to pay for it. Cause it was, I don't know, 25, 30 bucks, you know, to do the testing. So I went out and, you know, I cut grass and earned the money to buy my gi and buy my belts and do the testings. So he kind of taught me at a young age, you know, if that's, if you want something, you got to go earn the money. So whenever I wanted to go out and use his vehicle, he said, you know, I'll let you use my vehicle, but you, you know, you better bring it back with a full tank of gas, regardless of what's in there when you get it. And it better be clean, you know, or you'll never use it again. So, you know, oddly enough, every Friday that, that vehicle, that truck was always empty. <laughs> so he got it back with a, he got it back with a full tank of gas after he, you know, so he didn't have to pay for gas for a while. And even when I was a kid, you know, when I used his lawnmower, he would charge me a percentage of everything I made for using his equipment you know, to cover the gas, cover the maintenance and all that. And I had to clean it and do all that. So, you know, those are lessons that you learn at a young age that I think, you know, unfortunately a lot of, you know, the younger generation just aren't learning. So what I learned was, man, you, you got to work hard. You got to show up first, you got to leave last. And if there's something you want to do, you know, you just, you get out and you get after it and you do whatever it takes to get it done. And I've always had that kind of attitude is that, you know, if, if I want something, I will find a way to make it happen and I will do whatever it takes morally, legally, ethically, you know, to make mm. it happen and get it done. And I'm a doer, you know, so I'm one of those guys that if you have an idea, if you say, Hey, you know, I've been thinking about doing this or that. I'm like, well, let's go, let's do it. So I'm not a talker. I'm a doer. You know, I make things happen and I get things done. And I think if you ask people about me and say, Hey, how do you describe Greg? They'll tell you that, you know, he, he makes things happen. He's a guy that gets things done. So, you know, that's kind of how I'm wired. All right, and so Greg, of all the um, different types of um, real estate development projects you've worked on, which which are most fulfilling to you or which do you get the most enjoyment from? You know, they're all a lot of fun because it all starts with a vision, an idea, and that's, you know, entrepreneurial. I mean, real estate development is entrepreneurial. It starts with an idea. It starts with a vision, you know, then faith in it, then the means to implement it. And that's that's how success proceeds. And uh, you know, I guess nowadays, you know, I like to take old buildings and make them new. That's a lot of fun. Adaptive reuse. Um, you know, the ground up stuff is fun too, but it's not as, it's not as interesting and challenging as taking, you know, existing buildings and renovating them. And I guess, you know, that's where I started in my career doing renovations and it was creative and, you know, it was a problem solving effort, which, you know, development is too, you're maximizing property. And I'm very good at maximizing property and being creative about it and finding ways to do things that other people didn't think they could do or, or didn't know could be done. So that's kind of what I'm known for in my career is being able to really take a property and maximize it and create opportunities that other people didn't even know or even think to ask, you know, were there or, or, or if you could do it. All right. So yeah, let's, let's drill down into that a little more. So when you were approaching 
a development project? What are what are the things you're looking at from an evaluation standpoint? Uh, well, you know, first and foremost, uh, what does the market need? You know, what's missing? What are the gaps? You know, a lot of people have this this idea that you can build it and they will come. You know, and there's hey, there's this land and it's cheap and it's out in the middle of nowhere and it's a hundred acres and I can get it and build a community and people will come. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Um, number one, you've got to identify what what are the gaps in the market? What do, what do people need? What are they looking for? And what's going to thrive? <clears throat> you know, especially now more than ever. You know, with the e-commerce world of e-commerce, you know, Amazon, and now with the pandemic and everything, you, you not only have to be Amazon proof, but you have to be pandemic proof. And you have to be a business that's going to thrive in those types of environments when you're talking about mm -hmm. a brick and mortar development. And um, so it's, it's interesting today. But, you know, that's the first thing I look at is, you know, what's needed. Then the next thing I look at is, you know, what size is the property? What does the footprint look like? What does the topography look like? How is that building going to set up? Is it going to fit in with everything else that's around it? Because uh, it's got to look like it fits in. You don't want to build a, you know, skyscraper in the middle of a bunch of short buildings, you know, and you need to understand what are the height restrictions, setbacks, lot coverage, stormwater, parking, you know, you got to understand all those things, utilities. So there's a lot of things you, that go into that. And then once you understand all that, and what you're going to do, then you start thinking about footprint. So it all starts with the footprint. And that's the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out how do I maximize, you know, square footage per acre on this, on this piece of land. So, you know, there's rules of thumb in different areas of how much square foot, depending on the use that you can get on an acre of land. And depending on where you're at, you know, that acre could be, you know, a few million bucks, or it could be a few hundred thousand or whatever, you know, so, <clears throat> you know, land is not cheap. Development is not cheap. So you really need to maximize every square foot of that property. So that's kind of how I approach it and look at it. Then the numbers have to work. So once I determine what's needed, will it work? What does that footprint look like? How many square feet can I get on the property? You know, then you do the numbers. So you know it's either going to be worth so much if you sell it, you know, if you're doing townhouses or condos or whatever. <laughs> you know, that's going to generate X amount of sales. Um, so you take that minus all your costs to build it and develop it. And, uh, you know, does that leave a profit margin that's acceptable for the return on the risk that you're taking? Um, if it's an income property, you, you start with the income that, that the building will generate and then you work it backwards, you know, minus your expenses and, you know, minus your debt service. And then you take, you know, does that present a, a good enough return on the investment in order to, <clears throat> you know, offset the risk that you're taking to go into the project? Okay. And, um, are there any, um, I would say, so say you, you've you um, identified a project that you want to do and um, you got everything in place. Is there anything that would make that project a deal breaker once you get well, into you it? Well, you know, first and foremost, you know, it's about the numbers to do the numbers work, you know. So if you've identified, hey, this will work in terms of there's a need and I think I can, you know, sell it, fill it, whatever it is, rent it, you know, whatever your end game is, you always start with the end in mind and determine it's feasible. Then the first thing is the numbers. If the numbers don't work, then it just doesn't work. Uh, second thing is regulatory environment. How long will it take to get the project approved, get it built, get it, you know, leased up, sold, whatever it is, to, you know, to the execute on the business plan. Um, you know, if that is too long of a horizon, that could be a deal killer. Um, if there's going to be community opposition, then you have to weigh in on, you know, the political battle, you know, is it worth fighting the battle? Because as a developer, there's almost always opposition to development in most areas, depending on what it is, you know, it's, it's an environmental question, it's a, 
you know, not in my backyard question. It's a traffic question. It's a, you know, people just, a lot of people are just anti-development, you know, once they, once they've built theirs and they're in place, they don't want anybody else building next to them, you know, so <clears throat> it, it can be very, you know, it can be very difficult in terms of getting things approved. So I look at the regulatory environment and, you know, what it takes to get something approved and whether it's worth the time, energy and effort or not. And really at my point in life now, <clears throat> um, you know, it's all about return on time, you know, so I want to make the most and do the most with the least amount of time, energy and effort possible. So I evaluate and approach everything from that standpoint now, um, as where when I was younger, I didn't really think about it a whole lot that much, because you know, you're young, and you got all the time in the world. But as you get older, you realize how fast time goes and how long things take and you yeah. know how precious that resource is. So you want to get the highest return on your time, energy and effort invested. Okay, and um, are there any projects you've done that you would never do again? Um, no, not really. I mean, you know, they were all fun. They were all good, and I enjoyed. I enjoy all of them. Okay, so let's. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe you answered this, but so you're starting a project. Let's say six months from now. What and who do you need to get get started? What is what is the process? How does how does that work? Um, you're talking about a development project? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, development project. Excuse me, my throat's getting a little scratchy this morning. <clears throat> We've got some weird weather out here in my area right now. Um, so, you know, the first step starts with, you know, let's say it's, it's passed the feasibility test and, you know, everybody on the team has signed off on it. And we, we're moving forward. You know, your first step is going to be um, to, you know, check with the cities and counties and all that from a regulatory standpoint. Then your your first people in are going to be um, civil engineers. So you know you got to get the surveys done. <clears throat> you got to start developing the site plans. So you're going to have your civil engineers, your environmental engineers, you know things like that. And then you start working with your lender, you know, to get your package together in terms of the financing and things like that. But it all starts with the ground. You got to develop your footprint first, and then you design, you know, a building to fit within that footprint. So it starts with your your engineers and your surveyors. Um, while you're working with your lenders and then once you've established a footprint, then you bring your architecturals in and uh, start designing the actual building and, and, you know, go from there. If it's just land, then, you know, you're just basically dealing with civil engineers and surveyors, you know, to, to develop a, like a subdivision or something like that. And are you, are you pretty much using the same team for most of your projects at, at this point, I'm sure, right? In the areas I'm in, yeah, I've developed relationships over the last, you know, 25 years so yeah i use the same companies and people that i've been using forever uh and then there's also land use attorneys so if you're in an area that you that requires a rezoning or something like that then there's you know land use attorneys that you'll you'll bring into the mix to <clears throat> you know handle that process for you okay and how do you how do you usually handle time frame overruns <clears throat> well you know it's all part of the process so you know, things always take longer than you think. They always cost you more than you think. So, you know, as a developer, you just understand it is what it is. You keep moving forward and adjust the schedule as needed. So, you know, once you know what you're doing, you kind of have an idea how long things are going to take, but it's development, it's risky, <clears throat> you know, things pop up. And so you deal with them. And, you know, that's what we do as developers. You're solving problems. You know, you, you create opportunities, solve problems, make things happen and get things done. So you just kind of roll with it. Okay. And how did you go about building your professional network when you were first getting started? 
You know, just, I mean, I'm a networker. So just getting out there, talking to people, meeting people, doing deals with people, um, and then people recommending me, hey, you should meet this person, talk to that person. But a lot of it was networking. I was very involved uh, in the community, number one. I was on the boards of, you know, my church, every community organization, you know, not for the purpose of meeting people. I'm just, that's just what I do. You know, I'm a leader and I just get involved and I get tapped, you know, for things. So I was on the board of my church the whole time and, you know, led, led that effort. I, I led youth groups and nonprofits. I was on the board of the Babe Ruth softball. I had all girls, you know, I was on the board of Parks and Rec. I was on the board of the Education Foundation. I was on the board of the Home Builders Association, chairman of the Remodeling Council, you know, um, vice president of the Home Builders Association, ran the golf tournament. I mean, just all that stuff, you know, so all of this, you know, during, during the time when I'm doing all those things and, you know, even now I'm still a leader in my community. I always have been, um, you know, so that's one way is just being out there, being involved and getting involved and meeting people. And then there's the professional network associations, going to conferences, going to meetings, you know, doing those types of things and, and then doing deals, you know, so I was very fortunate. I was in an area called the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is a coast, uh, which is an island off the coast of North Carolina that's a summer vacation destination. So we had people primarily from the Northeast, uh, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Northern Virginia, um, you know, and, and other areas. But those are the primary demographics that visited and vacation there and owned properties there. So I was meeting very successful people from, you know, all over the country, all over that region coming down that were buying properties and I was building properties for. That's kind of where I really learned when there was a couple of guys uh, very wealthy individuals. One of them was uh, very high up with Citibank <clears throat> and they were buying, you know, million dollar beach houses and hiring me to do the renovations on them. And they were flipping them. You know, I'd never, I never heard of such a thing. So I started working for those guys and I was like, you know, I want to be you guys. I don't want to be working for you guys, you know, kind of like the rich dad, poor dad, mm-hmm. you know, philosophy. You want to be rich dad. You don't want to be Robert Kiyosaki. You want to be rich dad who everybody's working for. So I read that book and I said, I want to be rich dad. So you know, that's why I started all those other companies that created the cash flow to invest in other assets. And then, you know, I learned by doing projects for other investors and developers. Then I started doing projects with these investors and developers. And then I started doing my own. Uh, okay. so that's kind of how I, I built those relationships over the years. And, uh, you know, and more, you know, as you go along, it's more by introduction. Once you establish yourself and people know who you are and know that you're a, an expert, you're competent, you're professional, they will introduce you to their networks. And, you know, that's what's interesting. Never, I never asked for it. It just happened. And I assume that's the same way you, you built your investor da- database as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, over the years, um, I got to know people um, that, that, you know, wanted to invest. And that's just kind of how it happens. I just do what I do. And, you know, people would say, hey, I'd, I'd love to get involved in a project. Let me know when you have something. So, I mean, I, I get that call and conversation, you know, every week. And I've got a handful of investors I've worked with over the years, you know, for a long time that are always looking for something to invest in. So, you know, once you establish yourself and people know that you're reliable and they can trust you and that you know what you're doing, um, you know, the, the funding for your projects is unlimited. Uh, I mean, it really is unlimited. You just, you need to know what you're doing. You need to have a good, you know, good track record and build a good track record. And, um, you know, once you do that and establish that and you, you maintain that reputation, you know, literally you can raise an infinite amount of money. Okay. And uh, so let's talk about investors a little more. What, what kinds of value are 
most of your investors looking for and what types of expectations do they have? So, you know, the people that I work with now are liquid, you know, very, very liquid and liquid is north of a hundred million. And um, they are looking for uh, preservation of capital, first and foremost, they don't want to lose their money. They don't care if they make any, they don't want to lose money. And they like to get involved in deals just to be involved, um, just so that they've, they've got something, you know, going that their capital is growing, but, you know, mostly they're looking for yield. Um, you know, somewhere in that six to 8% range, you know, that's, if they make that, they're fine. But number one, they don't want to lose any money. That's the first and foremost thing that they're, they're more interested in than anything else. Okay. And you say six to 8% yield, and, and that's just on the exit. So they don't need necessarily need to have cash flow coming in on a monthly or annual basis. No, no, none of them are looking for that. They, they put it in and they're, you know, whatever it is, you know, one year, three years, five years, whatever the deal is, 10 years, you know, they don't care. You know, they've, they've got, you know, enough dry powder laying around that they're just, they just want to put it to work and they don't want to lose it. And so somebody with, that's a liquid, a hundred million, what, what kind of net worth would that person have if they have a hundred million? You know, it could be three, four, five hundred to a billion, you know, somewhere, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, and that's a very different investor mindset, very different, you know, animal. So your more sophisticated investors are less concerned with cash flow, less concerned with, you know, timeframes, they're more concerned with preservation of capital, you know, your less sophisticated investors and, you know, your average high net worth individual, you know, somebody who's making three, four, 500 to a million a year, that's got, you know, maybe they have a million bucks or something. Um, you know, they, they're the ones that are looking for monthly payments and, you know, they don't want to be tied up too long and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, so it's, it's a different conversation when you get to the level where people are worth, you know, a few hundred million to a billion. And what kind of, um, what kind of timeframes are they usually comfortable tying up their capital? Well, generally, you know, on, on most projects, that three to five year horizon, because that's just what most of them are. Um, okay. you know, I don't really do anything long, long term. Okay. All right. So I, I want to talk a little bit about raising capital. So when raising capital, do you, do you normally raise for specific projects or do you have a fund that you draw from? Well, for me in my career, it's been per project, you know, so, uh, you know, again, I can pick up the phone and raise, you know, whatever I need anytime I need. So it's always been per project and it's, it's not something I do a lot of cause I haven't really had to, you know, I've used my own resources over the years. Um, so it's, it's per project. I've never done, you know, the fund model. Okay. So if you were giving someone the three most important pieces of advice in your opinion for a capital raise, what would they be? For a specific capital raise for a project? Yes. Um, you know, well, number one, 506C. So you want to, in this day and age, you want to deal with accredited investors only. You want to be able to promote, you know, if you're depending on your network, if you need, you know, if you, if you don't know how you're going to raise it and you don't have a network that you can raise it, then you got to put it out there. So you want to go 506C, that way you can market it, you can promote, promote it. You're dealing with accredited investors only. Um, there's a lot of liability dealing with unaccredited investors, um, even if they're sophisticated, even if they're high net worth and aren't accredited. You know, uh, there's something um, about that accredited investor qualification that, that just kind of checks the liability box. <clears throat> so that's first and foremost, I'd go 506C, whether you're doing a fund or you're raising for a deal. Um, and then you want to make sure that 
you know, you find the right investors that are aligned with the types of projects you're doing. So whatever your time frame is, whatever your return threshold is, whatever your risk profile is, you know, make sure that you're going after people that are seeking those types of invested investments. You know, last thing you want to do is, you know, go after people that are looking for, you know, stock or gold or whatever and try to sell them a real estate deal. You know, you're not mm -hmm. going to convince anybody to invest in something they don't like or they're not used to investing in. So go where the appetite for what it is that you're doing already exists. Um, and, you know, and then be an expert, you know, so number one, educate yourself, develop yourself, make sure you know the deal, you know the business, you know the market, you don't have to have a track record. You can partner with somebody that does, but you've got to know what you're doing. So, you know, you don't have to have experience, you don't have to have a track record, but you better know that deal, you better know the numbers, you better know the market, and you better know the track record of who it is you're raising for and with if you're, you know, part of another deal uh, and you're leveraging, you know, that relationship and, and, uh, and doing those types of things. So, you know, that, that's really the main keys right there. And, you know, obviously honesty, integrity, and all that goes without saying, I mean, those are just givens, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta do what you say you're going to do. Um, you gotta deal with issues when they come up, if they come up and, you know, you gotta be reliable and, <clears throat> you know, you don't want people having to chase you down. You need to be organized, efficient, have a sense of urgency and be somebody who, when people, um, ask you for something or to do something they know it's done they know they're going to get it and they don't have to follow up and follow through on it you be the one to follow up and follow through on everything and everybody else and you know if there's one trait or characteristic that i have that's that's made me more successful than anything else it's that um self-motivated sense of urgency follow up and follow through if you ask me for something or to do something you don't even have to think about it so that's another thing when, you know, you ask people, hey, you know, what's this Greg Dickerson all about? They'll tell you, you know, he, he just gets it done. You never have to ask twice for something or to do something. And, you know, that's a that's a rare, more rare quality these days than you would think. Um, I can't tell you how many people I have to follow up with. And it's just sloppy. You know, there's just no excuse mm -hmm. for it. And, you know, that that speaks volumes. OK, good stuff. Good stuff. So. um. And real quick, so you mentioned um, 506C, so in advertising, so things are changing constantly in this in this um, realm. What do you think the the best ways are for advertising a, a capital raise? You know, obviously social media is huge. Um, you know, that's a big one. You can get email lists, uh, you know, of people that invest, you know, you can buy accredited investor lists, you know, you can, you can, um, you know, advertise on the commercial real estate platforms, you know, things like that. But, you know, social media is huge. You know, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, um, Instagram, uh, you know, promoting the deals that you're doing on there um, are the easiest way uh, to get to get it out there. But email is big, too. You know, buying email lists of, of accredited investors and, um, you know, going after those mediums. And who would who would one buy um, an email list of accredited investors? I'm sure you can just Google that, probably. But yeah, yeah, you can Google it. I'm you know off the top of my head, I'd have to I'd have to look at my um, I've got notes in my my uh, computer in terms of the resources for that. I I can't think of it off the top of my head, but there's a couple of them specifically. Um, if you look at data, where you can get that accredited investor list, but you can Google it and find it. And is there a pretty good ROI on buying those lists if you have a, a good deal? 
You know, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't done that. I haven't needed to, um, you know, so it's just not something that I've, I've had to do or, or had to deal with, but I know on social media, there is absolutely. Okay. And if you look at the companies like, you know, your Black Rocks and uh, Blackstones, Cadre, you know, Cadre is a big one out there that Fundrise is another one. You know, they're, they're using those lists in, in social media. Really? Okay. Yeah, I definitely know Blackstone and probably, I think KKR is getting into real estate a lot more as well. So, all right, and let's, um, let's do one more before we get into the um, lightning round. So how do you communicate with your investors when uh when your projections have fallen short and you may need more capital for the deal um you know just like that you know you just you just be honest and straightforward and and uh, you know they know that going into it so number one you communicate all of the disclosures up front you say hey you know here's what we think there you know there there may be a situation where we need more you know uh, we need to do a capital call Here's how that works when that happens, and you know we'll let you know. So you just make sure they're prepared for that, especially with development projects. You know things can happen. Mm -hmm. Generally, though, you know I'm good enough now to where I don't have to do that. You know I make sure that I raise plenty of money, so I don't, that, you know or I have plenty of funding, so I don't have to have those issues. But early in my career, you know things would happen, and you know you just you just deal with it. I mean it's a, it's not a big deal. You know stuff happens. You know um, now if you're just flat out incompetent, that's different. <laughs> um, but you know, if something just unforeseen comes up and it just happens, then you just, you know, you just put it out there. Hey, here's the issue we're having. Here's what it is. And, uh, you know, we'll deal with it and roll on. I'm not, an, I'm not one that advocates communicating every single little thing, you know, to, to investors. So if you're just syndicating a, you know, multifamily deals, hundred units, 300 units, 500 units, whatever it is, I'm not one who advocates, you know, communicating every detail to your investors in terms of, you know, well, we had occupancy this month is this, next month it's that. I mean, you know, here's your return or here it's, you know, or it's not. <laughs> I mean, you're either returning on, on the investment or you're not. So they don't really need to know every single little detail of the of the business plan and all that. Most investors don't even pay attention to it. So um, I would keep the communication, you know, as minimal as it needs to be. Hey, things are going well, plans executing well, you know, we're leasing up just like we planned. You know, we're going to make the returns and distributions like we talked about. And if you have a problem, hey, you know, this renovation, we found X, Y, and Z, we have to raise a little bit more capital. We weren't expecting, you know, uh, to have, you know, we weren't expecting this, but it is in the, in the disclosure. We did talk about it in the investor presentation that, you know, there is a potential that, you know, there may be a capital call at some point. So, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Okay. Very good. Good stuff. All right. So let's get into the um, lightning round, Greg. All right. So um, what is the book or books you've given most as a gift? You know, probably um, the three big ones are, uh, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, in terms of business and mindset, um, uh, Power of Positive Thinking and Think and Grow Rich. You know, those are those are three of the top ones. And then from a management standpoint, the One Minute Manager series of books. Okay, that one I haven't heard of, One Minute Manager series of books, okay. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's three books in the series, One Minute Manager, Putting the One Minute Manager to Work, leadership in the one minute manager and uh, those for every company I've ever been involved with um, that's the management philosophy that that we used and that we operate by and pretty much everything that you see now in terms of management systems are all built off of that okay all right so um next one how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success 
you know, learning. So every, you know, every obstacle that you face, every challenge that you face, every roadblock, stumble, failure, whatever you want to call it, you know, you're, you're building wisdom, knowledge, and education to where you know what works and what doesn't work and what to avoid and, and where to go next time. And, you know, it's really interesting, you know, having the wisdom and the knowledge is one thing. So, you know, a lot of people say it's what you know, um, but it's, it's what you know that's not true that could really trip you up. So as you go along, you know, I would say embrace the stumbles, embrace the roadblocks, embrace the failures, because that means you're one step closer to where you need to be and where you're going to be. That's how you learn. That's how you become better, smarter. And that's how you, you know, really build yourself is embracing those <clears throat> situations and learning from it and realizing what not to do next time. And knowing what not to do is way more important than knowing what to do. Yeah, and yeah, actually, um, Ray Dalio talks about that a lot in, in his book, Principles, is what you know or what you think you know that's not true that'll really bring you down. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you always want to be a seeker of wisdom, always listen to all sides and understand the information. And then when something doesn't go right, you don't look to point the finger. That's one of the things that, you know, made us really successful as a company. My whole thing that, that people that I used to say, you would hear me say all the time, is I don't care what happened. I care why it happened so that we can avoid it moving forward. Don't care who did it. Don't care. You know, I just want to know why, you know, why did this happen? How can we avoid it moving forward? So no punishment, no, no punishment, really. You just want to learn from it and move forward, right? Yeah, people make mistakes. You know, as long as somebody's not doing something, you know, underhanded or, or whatever, you know, but people are going to make mistakes. <clears throat> you know, organizations are going to make mistakes. Nobody's perfect, but that's how you learn. That's how you get better. Now, it, you know, if you've got a repeated situation, something that's going on repeatedly, you got to deal with it. But, you know, things are going to happen. Okay, excellent. All right, so next one, if, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions or billions, what would it say and why? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I guess it would be that you have no limits. You know, you could do, for those, for those of us that have faith in God, you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you, whatever your faith is. You know, just the belief that anything and everything is possible if you educate yourself, pour in yourself, do the work that it takes, you know, you can do whatever it is you want to do. You don't have to do anything. You can do what you want to do. Now, within reason, you know, your abilities and physical limitations, I'm not going to go play quarterback for, you know, <laughs> the New England Patriots, you know, <laughs> but, you know, whatever it is you want to do in life, there are no limits. You can do anything. Think big. Don't limit yourself. Don't buy into mediocrity. That's a big billboard, but you know that the message is it can be said a number of ways. Right, love that, love that one. Okay, what is what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it could be an investment of money, time, energy, et cetera. There's no better investment that returns like investing in yourself. Wisdom. Okay. And what's an unusual habit? or an absurd thing that you love? Yeah, nothing really. <laughs> I don't have any unusual habits or absurd things. I, you know, I, I guess for me, I'm a constant, I'm a seeker of wisdom. So I'm constantly devouring information. So that, you know, if anything, I don't read, <clears throat> I don't like to read novels or books. I read business books, personal professional development. So if it's not something that's gonna move me forward, 
intellectually, you know, physically, spiritually, I, I don't mess with it. You know, I don't read for entertainment. I read for development. How many books do you read a year? Uh, you know, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, maybe, you know, cause I don't read them cover to cover. You know, I, I, I skip a lot of the, the, you know, fluff and I, and I read what's important so I can get through about 50 or 60. And then when I'm not reading, you know, I probably spend four to five hours a day pouring into myself through reading, um, listening to podcasts, watching, you know, YouTube videos. They're all about the markets, business, things like that. You know, I coach and mentor people all over the world. So, you know, I need to stay as sharp as I possibly can in every area, especially right now. So I spend, I spend four or five hours a day, you know, pouring into myself, staying up with what's going on, studying the markets, you know, studying business, studying finance, you know, those types of things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking you're not watching a lot of um, TV dramas, right? No, I'm not a Netflixer. I, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy the movies, you know, when the movies were open, movie theaters were open, I'd get out every weekend and, you know, I like, I like to go to the movies and things like that. But yeah, I'm not sitting down in front of the TV. I like to watch the news and kind of keep up with what's going on, you know, in the local community and nationally. And I watch all sides. So I get all viewpoints, um, you know, so, um, but yeah, you're not going to see me binging on Netflix or something like that. You know, I'll, I'll catch something every now and then, but, you know, again, you only have so much time on this planet and you are, the sum of what you put into your mind, period. You are only going to be, you know, a lot of ways you can summarize that. You're going to be who you hang around and all that. It all kind of goes together at the end of the day. Whatever you put into yourself is what you're going to get out in your life, period. There's, there's just no other way to explain that. And that's in every area, mentally, sp physically, spiritually, you know, whatever you put in, that's what's coming out. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you are what you eat, right? Exactly. All right. So what advice, what advice would you give to a smart, I usually say driven college student, but I'll, I'll just say, what, what advice would you give yeah. to a smart driven person about to enter the real world? You know, so I mean, we can go there. So for college kids, get all the education you can while you can right now, you know, and if you have the aptitude, the resources, get your, get your, you know, graduate degree, you know, uh, go to a top, you know, or a good graduate school. There's great programs in real estate and development that you can get now, but that network, is huge. You know, if you go to a Darden or a Stanford or a Yale or a Harvard, um, you know, top business schools, there's a network that's extremely valuable, you know, in the education as well. So get the proper training education uh, it, it, as far as you can, while you can. I didn't go to college, but I am a, a, a huge supporter of college. You got to have a good, well-rounded education. I spent 30 years educating myself because I didn't go to college. You know, that, that you know, a lot of that could have been shortened. Um, for anybody else, do you know you need to do and go after and pursue something that you love now i'm not one of those guys that's you know hey find your passion and you know do do that i mean but you do have to enjoy what you're going to do so find something that interests you because that's when you know that's when you find your sweet spot when you do something you're sincerely interested in and, and you're passionate about then it's not work and i've never worked a day in my life you know after i started my entrepreneurial career it's just to me it's just what i do it's what i am it's not work and i'm not a workaholic you know i have good balance but i you know to me it's not work so find something that you're very interested in that you're passionate about that you can you know pour yourself into and then pour yourself into it immerse yourself become an expert in whatever it is you're going to do so i say market a lot know your market well that's in business that's in real estate Anything you're going to do, there is a market. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're a doctor, lawyer, massage therapist, you know, uh, gym, uh, you know, um, 
personal trainer, gym owner, restaurant owner, whatever it is, you have a market. Know your market, know your demographic, know your craft, become an expert, don't cut corners, you know, become a master of your craft and be passionate about it and love what you do. And you'll never work a day in your life and you'll be successful. Sweet, sweet. And what advice, what advice should they ignore? You know, anybody who tells you you can't do something that you want to do, just ignore that and just go do it. Yeah, that's good. Because, yeah, there's there's plenty of people out there looking to tell you that as well. Also. So, yeah, definitely. You'll always advice. find somebody who tells you that you can't do it, that, it, that you, you know, it, it won't happen, it can't happen. You can always find them. Yeah. And what that really means is they can't do it or it won't happen for them. But Right. Yeah, definitely. All right. So one more before we jump off. So when you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused or have lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? So that just doesn't happen. Answer. I'm very, I've never had that. I'm very focused. I'm very, you know, purposeful. I've just never had those. But what I do is I stay consistent. I'm always positive. I'm always upbeat. I'm always looking for opportunity. I'm always looking at the bright side. You know, I exercise regularly. I fill my mind. I think that's, that's just a lot of it. I mean, I'm just a natural optimist, not, <clears throat> not to the point of delusion, but I'm all, no matter what happens, I'm always looking for the bright side of it, you know? So I just, I really don't have those times. All right. Perfect. All right. So great. I'm never unfocused. It's just, I'm always, I'm just, just, again, when you find what you love to do, everything else falls into place. Yeah. I definitely believe that about you as well. From, from, from what I've known since we've met, I definitely can say, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know if it's just me, you know, but I just, uh, you know, I've just always been (laughs) just, just the way I am. All right, Greg, and, and before we jump off, if um, anybody wants to contact you, learn more about your company or collaborate, what's the best way to um, learn more or get in contact with you? So it's uh, gregdickerson.com. Everything's there. I have a YouTube channel podcast and, and you know, I put out content every day and just sharing the wisdom and experiences that I've gained over 30 years of doing all kinds of different things. So it's uh, gregdickerson.com. All right, perfect. All right, Greg. So yeah, we've definitely covered a wealth of information here. I'm, I'm so happy to um, have spent an hour with you this morning. So thanks so much again for uh, spending that time with you and sharing your wisdom. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And I know where you are, it's nine o'clock at night. So, you know, thank you for, you know, uh, doing this and, and adjusting your schedule to everybody you know, around the country. I know it's tough, you know, being in that time zone there, but uh, you're in a wonderful place. Uh, I know a lot of people would love to, to visit Japan and be over there and enjoy you know that lifestyle yeah definitely all right greg so yeah thanks again thanks so much and i'm sure we'll be talking again soon but um you have a good day yeah you too don thanks all right thanks so much take Take care care. bye there you have it guys another episode of dealmaker diaries in the books if you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing please do leave us a nice review it goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction for you investors If you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.